If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the studio, I am super stoked to have back by popular demand, Ben Schiller, who Ben was on on the um, podcast in season one, episode eight. And Ben's a psychologist and um, just also a reformed trash bag. May I say, Ben? You can. (laughs) Um, We only have trash bags on this show, reformed trash bags. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming back. My pleasure. So if anyone wants to hear about your story and your journey with alcohol, they can go back to season one, episode eight and have a listen and get a gauge of what you went through with alcohol. But I think with all the study you've done and the way you've changed your life, it's pretty awesome. You know, it's pretty great. And you're definitely someone that can speak with authority on these matters. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about the psychology of drinking, of, of like, say, binge drinking and daily drinkers as well. But I guess we focus, well, tend to focus more sometimes on the, the grey area drinkers. So... For those of you who don't know, and are you f- familiar with, you'd be familiar with that term, Ben, the grey gray area drinkers? Yeah. Um, no, I'm not. It's sort of, I watched a TED talk on it recently and I'll put uh, links in the show notes about this, but it's sort of like that, you know, you're not a daily drinker yep. and you're still quite a heavy drink. It's sort of like just a binge drinker, you know, but they're that grey area. There's someone that doesn't necessarily need to go to AA, they don't need to go into rehab, but they still need a bit of help. Sure. Yeah, so say someone like me who was just a regular binge drinker, 
Would you say we necessarily, there's a reason behind it, a psychological reason behind why we drink? Oh, well, I guess with all drinkers, really, is there usually a psychological component to it, do you think? I would say initially, no. Um, I think initially people start drinking, I guess, in a binge pattern mm. um, as a form of stress release. But equally, I think they do it to have a bit of fun. You know, mm. like so every week on a Friday, you might go, go catch up with friends, have a barbecue, go out and party, drink excessively. Like you might drink more than, say, four drinks in a sitting. And um, health standards stipulate that for to, to minimise the impact of alcohol on, on our systems, on our bodies and, and our minds, that we shouldn't have more than four drinks in a sitting, which is interesting. Geez, um, four drinks that... I'd- Almost class that as a not drinking day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Drinking. yeah and, and I think it's 10 standard drinks across the course of a week, which isn't a lot, you it's know. Not much, like, is it? But getting back to your question, uh, people initially start out, and this everyone would know this, like start out, it's a bit of fun, it's a release, mm-hmm. it's a reduction in stress. When that develops into um, more of a what I might class as a dependent pattern, mm. And it's probably good to clarify, like someone that is a grey drinker, they might not be on a park bench with a, with a bottle in a paper bag, mm. but they're relying on alcohol in a dependent way, you know, or they're dependent on alcohol. And even though that might only be every week or, or every second week and over, you know, it might happen to be two or three nights in a row um, when they do decide to drink, the diagnostic and statistics manual that we use in psychology that that would still be classed as dependency with the the psychology associated with gray area drinking generally speaking people that end up in that predicament haven't developed regulation strategies Mm. don't have an internal regulation system Mm. that enables them to manage the stress that they're feeling or absorbing that enables them to go out and i guess not just manage stress but in a healthy way experience joy Mm. experience connection with other people with without the use of alcohol and usually the reasons why people don't have those and i call them affect regulation systems Um, the reason why people have underdeveloped regulation systems a lot of that stems back to their childhood so there's a theory called attachment theory which was initially developed in the 1970s and there's different types of attachment that people have that kids have with their primary caregivers based on that style of attachment they have with their primary caregivers, they can either have a really well-developed regulation system, affect regulation system, mm. which means they've had secure attachment with their, with their parents or mm-hmm. their primary caregivers. It means that they've had nurture and care. It means they've had really solid boundaries that the parents have placed upon the children. It means that the parents have at times shamed the children in a healthy way, hey, Johnny, you shouldn't have done that. That's not okay. But then the parents don't leave the child alone to feel the shame. They then go in and repair the relationship. Um, So the children learn how to tolerate shame. Um, A lot of the time with that secure attachment. So people that experience that growing up, and that's a really small proportion of the population, tend not to rely on substances or alcohol to regulate themselves is that just general across the board like that seems to be there wow yeah yeah it's not the only only i guess reason that people don't end up in reliant 
or grey area drinking, but it's certainly a big, uh, I, I guess, a, a big link. You know, it's a big, mm. um, I guess, preventative factor. Well, the other types of attachment are insecure attachment, and there's three types. There's an anxious, insecure attachment, which which involves a lot of anxiety that that the child has with its primary caregivers. Um, sometimes the the parents are present, sometimes they're not, which is quite common in busy households. Uh, sometimes uh, if, if the child meets the parents' expectations, the parents really is, can be really loving and caring and nurturing. This is anxious attachment. But when the child doesn't meet the expectations of the parents, they can be really harsh in their shaming of the child, mm. um, which sets up, really sets up this sort of foundation of a child making sure that they keep a parent happy and not really being able to regulate itself unless the parents regulate it. That totally sets up the scenario for someone becoming dependent on on alcohol or substances later in life. One of the other types Mm. of attachment is avoidant. So often we've found with fathers, you know, fathers uh, historically, um, it's becoming less this way now, but historically fathers have been the providers for the household. So they're not all that present, Mm. particularly emotionally. And ultimately the relationship with the children is emotionally avoidant. So mm. what the children... Can, and that can happen with mums too, especially mums that suffer from addiction or... I was about to say, because my mum was an addict and I think there was definitely that avoidant thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if a mum suffers from depression, which is pretty common, postnatal mm. depression, the, the mum's not able to provide that nurture and care that they normally would. Mm. And the message that sends to the child is that oh, I'm not lovable. You know, and they start believing that, and the child then consequently becomes quite independent and really doesn't see people as a as a way of regulating itself. So yeah. it steps away. You know, there's some benefits to these different attachment styles. Anxious attachment means you have ex- usually pretty good people skills. Avoidant attachment means usually really good at operating on your own you know like and then the third style of attachment is is disorganized and and i guess the the form of regulation there is all tied up in in the title of disorganized i mean if someone's experienced sexual abuse or really chronic uh, physical and emotional abuse then they end up being really disorganized in, in their regulation and they don't know whether they're anxious they don't know whether they're avoidant um Thankfully, that's not too common, but um, unfortunately, people that suffer with borderline personality disorder invariably, not, not always, because um, it can be biological, but, you know, have, have experienced uh, avoid, uh, sorry, um, disorganized so attachment. Mm. Yeah. So the reason why I'm explaining that is, going back to your original question, you know, is there, what is the psychology behind grey area drinking? I think a good thing for people to ask themselves is what was it like growing up, you know? Like, how did I regulate myself? What did I watch my parents do to regulate themselves? Mm. What did they do to have fun? What did they do to relieve stress? Mm. And you'll start to bottom out some trends in your approach as an adult, you mm. know? What have I taken from childhood, you know? Like, a, it, at the end of the day... Mm. Drinking alcohol is an avoidant approach to dealing with your emotions because you don't mm. have to. You, you squash them. And it's pretty effective, by the mm. way, in doing that. But doing it over a longer period of time results in all sorts of other 
social issues for someone, mm. health issues, mental health issues, physical health issues is what I meant by health, because of that constant flattening of, of emotions, which should be coming out on a, on a daily basis, ultimately. Mm. So if you, if you, you know, if you respect, if you suspect that your upbringing style was one of these kind of theories. Yes. Attachment styles. Yeah. Yeah. If you feel that that's, you're one of those is, how do you kind of resolve that? Good. Yeah. Good question. So ultimately we're almost always still going to have that attachment style. I think the most important thing Mm. we can do for ourselves. And by the way, there's an initial researcher that conducted this research was a chap by the name Balby in the 1970s. It's B-O-W-L-B-Y. You just do a Google search on attachment theory and you'll learn a lot. And we spend a lifetime adapting to the world based on those initial relationships that we had. Is that know? because of like the mirror neurons and how we, we mirror yeah, those around us? That's yeah, it yeah, got a lot to do with it. A lot, to, a lot of the time it's to do with um, how do I keep myself safe or how do, I, how, do, how do I make sure that people like me, you know? Mm. You know, at the end of the day with our primary caregivers, we want them to love us and like us and, um, you know, when when we're growing up, we we work out strategies mm. to try and make that happen, and you know, um, yeah, that's so true. And that continues mm. through into teenage years and through into early adulthood, and you know, with twenty or thirty years mm. of of having these adaptive approaches, they become pretty well embedded. So we can change them, mm. but we can also use them to our, our advantage. Like mm. when I, when I mentioned secure attachment at the start. An adult that's had secure attachment or experienced secure attachment is able is very good with relationships with people, but is also very good and very happy and content on their own. Mm. So they use a blend of activities and a blend of, um, I guess, socialising versus using solitude, employing solitude mm. in their day-to-day life. Do you know many people like that? Uh, I know a few, mm. yeah. I, mm. I certainly know... Quite a few people that have had anxious attachment and avoidant attachment that have learnt about secure attachment and have and have moved more in that direction as adults. So, can you naturally do that just by figuring out, just by watching people? You know, you're kind of like, oh, okay, that this is how we socialise now, kind of thing. Especially if you get a bit of distance between, you yeah. know, yourself and your family. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. Like I, I, I you know, how occasionally. You know, we've all done it. Like you've gone, oh, I love how so-and-so is able to walk into a party and kind of stroll up to someone and start a conversation. Or mm. or we might admire something something else, like the way so-and-so over here is able to set goals and then they go about achieving those goals. Mm. So I think we kind of do it intuitively. Mm. Like we're observing our world and we and we, we see what we like. Yeah, absolutely, mm. yeah. You can observe it and, mm. and mirror it. Yeah. You know, yeah. like... And it's not complicated. Like I think, I think the tricky bit is mapping, going back to childhood and going back and having a look at what your relationships or what your parents were like first and foremost because mm. um, a lot of people have a pretty idealised view of their parents um, and, and just being a bit pragmatic, going, yeah, um, sometimes Dad, he'd fly into a rage, you know, like, mm. and I wouldn't feel safe, so I'd go and hide. Um, mm. that's avoid an attachment and other times um, you know mum you know she was really loving and caring but if I didn't do what she wanted she would just tell me I was selfish that's anxious attachment 
okay mm. so and it's just it's just a matter of kind of going back through going ah oh, okay this is what i had this is how it is reflected in my adult life and this is what i'm going to do to try and balance it all out i was just thinking about my childhood with my mum i've talked about mum and her her drug addiction and stuff like that on the podcast before but she's kind of good now or she's good now but as a child like at times she would be so great like she was quite churchy as well into the pentecostal type church thing so you can imagine like really up and high and and awesome on the pretty can diet and just really going for it and quite inspirational my mum can be extremely inspirational but then if she got some kind of an emotional setback boom out drugs out it was fucked up and then she was just gone and you know either in hospital for huge stints or just in bed cowering and at times when I needed her when I was a child she just wasn't available I just thought about it and I put the two the patterns together and saw how at times I can retreat like I do that to myself I can be really up 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 and then something will happen and I kind of go to hide from it not always but just really big not the big like work things and things like that and I've realized well what am I going to do about this and I've just I've read that Pete Walker book you know have you complex PTSD surviving to thriving great book that my friend Jeannie who's a great therapist she got me to read that was amazing and I really he talks about self-parenting and things like that and so I just thought well if that was what was um shown to me as a child that was the sort of behavior I don't want to keep repeating that so I guess all I can do is show up and be rock solid for myself and be aware of that pattern I guess once you're aware of a pattern then you can change it totally yeah yeah yeah. I love that love that concept of Mm. parenting yourself Um, some some uh, therapists call it reparenting um, Reparenting. That's probably actually the word for it. And, yeah, but, and yeah. you know, like in, in I guess, psychotherapy realms, uh, there's a concept of an inner child mm. uh, and a functional adult. Mm. We, you know, this, these are two kind of entities within us. Mm. And absolutely, like working out what you've experienced growing up, which means you're under, getting an understanding of what your inner child Mm. is and, mm. and what it, what its traits are and what it looks like and then understanding what secure attachment is and which is mm. basically just how do I live a balanced healthy existence how do I acknowledge my emotions and process them well um, what do I do to ground myself what's healthy diet what's fun mm. um, you know what's mischief but mm. but ultimately we, we kind of educate ourselves just going alright well, well as an adult like as the functioning adult what am I going to do to help parent the child and yeah it's 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 really really effective yeah it really is and if you can just say to yourself okay well if that wasn't there for me but i can be there for me yeah it's actually really quite empowering to go i'll just show up for myself (laughs) and it's really nice to hear you say that about empowering because i think what is the most empowering is when people don't blame their parents and when people don't go oh i experienced avoid an attachment um, because mum was in addiction at times or dad was in a rage or whatever it was and people don't blame you know that when people can can acknowledge because there are some benefits there are some gifts like people do people learn to adapt and that that adaptation is quite profound Mm. but it's really really vital not to blame and then step into the most empowering bit which is going all right what can I do now what are the healthy things for me to do for myself now I was going to say that to you because I get worried about talking like 
I don't like to do this blame thing. Yep. It's the same as like with mum. I've got full compassion for her and I compl- you know, I just I just feel for her that she was obviously going through stuff that led to her to have an addiction. I don't have any anger there for that. But it doesn't have to be that, does it? You can use, like you say, you can use it to your advantage and Yeah, look, I'd, I'd, and the best way not to blame is to go, well, well dad was like that and what did he experience? Exactly. What attachment did he have as a kid? Mum was like this. Mm. Wonder what wonder what attachment mum had, you What know? were they going through yeah, at the time too? Yeah. So yeah. I always find with clients like if we if we map back to their grandparents and their great-grandparents, you know, there's a thread and it's ultimately it's it doesn't help anyone if we step into blame. But it absolutely helps everyone. Any everyone, if we just understand, you like know. an awareness of it. Yes, got the awareness, yes. but yep. not the blame thing going on. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, some people will step into blame. It's kind of part of the process. Like there's an anger that can come up, and often people's response to anger is to go into blame, and I guess just acknowledging it. Oh, I'm in blame at the moment. That's part of reparenting yourself. That's part mm. of learning to regulate your own emotions. It's like I'm going mm. into victim. I'm blaming. I'm going to step out of it. Yeah. Which is okay. It's fine to do that. Yeah. God, you are so. I love you because you're just so like non-judgmental. You're just like it's all right, you know. Just do that. And <laughs> it's so good. Awesome. So the other thing I wanted to ask about is just something I was reading recently about the dopamine that gets released. So just going back to not just the psychological effects of alcohol, but even like talking a little bit about what happens physically to the body when we drink. Yep. Yeah. Can we just talk just t- just yep, slightly yep, on that? Yep. Sure. Um, so. Like alcohol is absorbed through the stomach into the bloodstream. Um, it goes up into the brain, like all, all around our bodies, and um, has a pretty immediate effect on on everything, like on our perception, uh, on our nervous system. It relaxes us, and as a result of that, there's a bit of a dopamine release. You mm. know, like mm. we have these these pleasure systems, right? Mm. And a lot of the time, the reason why dependency can build up is that we quite like going back and releasing dopamine. You know, like mm. we, we like going back and going, oh, cool, I feel good again. And I won't go into the neurobiology of it too much. But what's key to remember is that our, our pleasure or reward systems aren't meant to be triggered by substances. You know, Mm. our reward systems are meant to be triggered by things like exercise, by Mm. things like running, by things like laughing, playing games. So, and don't get me wrong, it's okay if we use, like, Mm. because quite often if we enjoy food, our reward system's being triggered. So it's okay if some things we ingest do trigger it, but the problem that happens with dependency is that those reward systems are constantly being triggered and our bodies end up developing this over-reliance on alcohol mm. in order to achieve, achieve that reward. Yes. Um, and we don't think we can achieve the reward in any other way. You know, this is all. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Fairly unconscious. Yeah. So that happens. And if someone's wanting to get out of this sort of loop that they're in with the pleasure reward system going on with alcohol. I did read in this book therapy that I'm reading that you can almost liken it to having a stroke. The neuroplasticity in the brain works around that. And you think that's the only way I'll ever get pleasure again is to keep drinking. Mm. But like someone who's had a stroke, you can learn the change, the neuroplasticity in your brain to then learn to seek pleasure and dopamine from back to what you were saying. Yeah. Great. Like in layman's terms, our reward systems, you know, like is like a running track. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know how when we were kids and we would run around the oval to warm up before playing football or, or if you were netball, you might run around all the netball courts. And, and what happens there is there's like a, a divot that's kind of run into the ground and you know where to run because it's just sort of round and round in circles. The way I like to always describe it is when we want to change, we step two feet outside the old running track and we mm-hmm. find a new running track and we go around it. Yeah, that's great. And then we go when we, you know, and we don't just choose one more running track to go to. We choose three. Oh, well, know, yes. like, By the way, people, people that like to rely on booze, they're partial to a bit of risk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like they like having fun. They like mischief. They like, you know, fucking around a little bit, and, mm. and which I love. And what's important when we create these new running tracks, as in we're finding things that give us reward choose one thing that's something new you know choose one thing that involves a bit of risk and and that might be social risk by the way you going along to a band on your own or going to a poetry night on your own or whatever it is you know like going to dancing you know in Brunswick Heads they have dancing from 10 to 12 on a Sunday morning I went along to that recently on my own and it was really triggering uh, sorry it was introducing new pleasure pathways for me you know oh my god that's genius Ben and we we, you, you know, and I, and I guess um, uh, in, when you talk about neuroplasticity of the brain, it's, re- it's really powerful and really flexible, but we've got to actually put the action in um, to, help, to help it move towards that. And, and we take the action by going, all right, I think I'm interested in that. I know I'm interested in surfing, so I'm going to do a bit more of that. Um, I think I'm interested in dancing. I'll give that a go. Oh, my God. Yes. Aha moments going yeah. off here everywhere. Yeah. That is that. That's why then, isn't it? If you just sit on your ass and just kind of think, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. That's why it doesn't yeah. really work because you really need to. Yeah, no, we, we've got to, I think it's um, got to absolutely replace the activity of drinking with other things that are fun or pleasurable. And a little bit challenging. Yeah, a little bit for sure. Some yeah. of them, some of them challenging. They don't all have to be. I think it's important because it's a big task to have a break from booze or to give it up. You know, like it's. I, I really applaud anyone that steps into that realm of giving up alcohol. It's difficult enough a process as it is, so it's good to have some things that you just know and you know you can step into that bring you a bit of fun. Mm. So something's challenging, and something, but also something's not. Especially when you get down the track a little bit too. I think definitely the first, especially the first month or even longer for depending on how bad your problem has been, I guess. But then I know myself, it's like 
it's not a boredom that comes up, but I just know when I'm ready to tackle something new. Like mm. last year, I joined a theatre group just to do something really different. Fantastic. Get outside of my comfort zone. Brilliant. Yep. Yeah. And it wasn't because I wasn't busy or anything like that. I've been busy, but it just was really good to get, you know, to just do something different, meet new people. Yeah. We're meant to develop. We're meant to evolve. Mm. And... um Getting back, getting back to your question, but from quite quite a bit earlier around the psychology behind um, behind drinking, I think you were mainly asking about the drivers of why someone might end up in grey yeah. drinking. But one of the psychological impacts of of being a grey drinker is that it arrests your development uh, and a full blown alcoholic. By the way, it totally arrests emotional development. You know, mm. so I'll treat people that have been alcoholic or a drug addict for twenty years. Their emotional level is of one of a teenager, you know, mm. and they're, they're the first to admit that. By the way, um, so so there's we are we're meant to evolve, we're meant to change, mm. you know, and mm. and I like to ask the question, you know, how has alcohol impacted your personal goals? Yeah. You know, when, I, when I'm trying to help someone un- decide, it's their decision, but I'm trying to help them decide whether they want, should stop or not, we get stuck in, okay, how's it impact your personal goals? And invariably, people haven't actually set any personal goals if they've yeah. been stuck in dependency with alcohol. Or they've always had these goals in mind, but they've just never been able to set about achieving them. It's like they just can't get the traction to get it going. Yeah. So when you treat someone, do you give them a... Do you try and set them a personal goal? Like just I don't. No. But I tell them to set it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, um, and they always do. You yes. know, they always do. I think it's there's, there's two approaches to treating alcohol dependency. And one is to positively reinforce recovery, which means that you explain to them the positive effects or the positive things that happen as a result of being sober Mm. Uh, and one of those positive things is achieving their goals Mm. Um, the the other approach to treating it is negative reinforcement which is reminding them and going over they tell me all the shit that goes down yeah you know uh, or or all the pain that they that that, that they get stuck in Mm. as a result of their dependency so. When I've been, you'll probably laugh at this, but when I've been coaching people, I get them to write their, I call it their shit list. <laughs> it's like, it's like the it's cringe great. list. Yeah, yeah, it's And great. then um, their freedom list, I call it, so how it would feel or, you know, how, what they envisage for themselves yeah, and when they're free. And it's really important to have both ends of the spectrum there. Like that, the mm. shit list is a negative reinforcement and it's, it's, it's necessary because it works. Mm. And, and the positive reinforcement is really all about, okay, what, how can I develop? How can I evolve? Mm. And, um, it's, it's cool. So what I also meant to from, I don't know how clear I was when I first asked that question about the gray area drinking, but I, I remember having this argument with Ash one day. He's like, I don't have any psychological reason. I just was fun. That was it. And I'm like, no, no, there must be something deeper there. Like there must be, there's got, cause I think there always has to be something. That was what I wanted to just uncover with you is like, does there always have to be a psychological component to have some form of dependency on alcohol, even if you're not full-blown alcoholic, but if you're just someone that just can't give it up. You just can't, but you don't feel like you've got any kind of... Yeah, look, it's interesting because it's grey area drinking. I'm going to say, yeah, Mm. there always always does. Yeah, I'm with you. And, 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 and And the reason why I'm saying that is 
Um, say someone's had secure attachments, so they've had a fantastic upbringing, really caring parents, good boundaries, strict, some, some strictness. They're great with relationships. Um, and they end up in a, in a binge cycle. Mm. So whilst the, the, uh, we call it drivers of addiction, so mm. is there a driver there for someone to end up in that binge cycle? And looking at their childhood, the answer is no. But is there a driver there with their current predicament in life mm. for them to stay in that binge cycle? And the answer is yes. You know, yeah, you know, like be. psychology doesn't all have to relate back to relational trauma from childhood. The drivers of someone being stuck in a binge cycle or grey area drinking can be as simple as having no motivation. Mm. Can be as simple as mild depression. It can be as simple as the letdown of wanting to achieve something in the in your career and not achieving it, you know, like mm. not setting goals. Yeah. So, having no, the goals are so important, aren't they? If you don't have goals, you're just like a feather in the wind. You're just kind of like, you know, you're there and there's nothing to kind of get that traction. I really think goals are so important, not just for alcohol, but for anyone really to must have some goals in life or something to look forward to yeah um, yeah I to I, I get th- you out of a rut i think so i think i think they're, they're a great motivator i think mm. i think they provide people with direction i think it's i think they can be people can be too goal oriented you know they don't enjoy the moment and they're mm. always focused on the end point mm. i certainly suffered from that earlier in my life but i you know like little goals they're really vital actually yeah yeah yeah. so another question is going back to your running track analogy that you've got here this is one thing I'm I'm interested in you know when someone takes six months off alcohol or two years or you hear about alcoholics who haven't drunk for 13 years and they have one drink you know they get the the sneaky bitch alcohol says just have one drink you'll be fine you'll be fine and then they have one drink and they're back to it yeah um why is that What's going on? Is that to do with the neuroplasticity in the brain? Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, the the original running track never goes away. Right. So mm. it's always sitting there waiting. And yeah, it's really up to the individual to... to why is that, Ben? Like, what, what's do you know what's going on? Why it's always there? And what is it about the drink that just triggers people straight back into that? Yeah, good question. I'm, I'm going to relate it back to behavior behaviorism so like you know how i talked about um, different attachment styles those ways of relating that we learn at a really young age always stay with us we we can change we can change and we do change if we're pretty effective at it actually but example is uh, as i've gotten older i'm i'm a lot less concerned about people's perception of me Mm. but that that concern about what someone thinks of me is never, never going to be totally eradicated. Mm. So, and I think it's ultimately, and where it lies is in our memory systems. So mm. we have we have um, short and long-term memory systems and we have uh, explicit and implicit memory systems. So explicit is um, when I do the times table, when I do a series of tasks set out um, that are quite specific um, I have to actually consciously step through them implicit memory is something like so it's unconscious and it's something along the lines of when someone gets angry near me I look and determine if I've been the cause of their anger and then I look and work out how I can placate them 
you know mm. and the, all of that's quite a, an unconscious response to anger mm. and what happens mm. with that's alcoholics so it's like an innate thing yes yeah. innate good one yep yeah. uh yeah it's it, it's a, it's learned you know like mm. and um and then it becomes innate as you say like it's it's like this unconscious part of us and and with alcohol it's a bit the same i think if someone uses it repeatedly and and particularly at chronic levels of consumption as soon as they have one or two drinks they slip in, implicitly mm. slip straight back into that old way of relating relating yeah. with alcohol which is which is to abuse it in the early days even in the early days when someone develops a dependency on alcohol they lose that dopamine rush so you'll hear people share about going oh the alcohol isn't affecting me like it used to particularly with drugs actually people will mm. say i've got to take more and more drugs mm. and the reason for that is that um they've basically burnt out their reward systems you know like mm. and and initially, like if someone goes back to alcohol after a long period of time away from it, yeah, the first 20 minutes, they might get that dopamine rush you're talking about. Mm. But unfortunately, there's a whole lot of shame and a whole lot of discord and destruction mm. that comes back to people, we find, mm. um, that return to alcoholic drinking. Wow. So when someone drinks and they drink and they have that dopamine hit, you know how it feels good? The first few drinks always feels good. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it does. Like I think because, uh, you know, like alcohol goes to all parts of the brain, it mm. go, goes to all parts of your regulation system, mm. um, like the limbic system, um, mm. the HPA axis, the autonomic nervous system, um, and uh, basically floods it, you know, like mm. and, and, and numbs it. So mm. you're you're definitely after, uh, you know, the, the buzz is in that first little period and then people are often, as they say, chasing the buzz yeah. from there on in. Yeah. So with this, I know when yourself, because your recovery was quite, you know, a big journey for you and a lot of the other people I've had on this podcast, I mean, there is obvious, because it sounds like, wow, this is, pretty heavy stuff and this sounds like it's pretty you know in in us and it's hard you know be hard to kind of get over some of these things particularly childhood things but there is hope right it's not all doom and gloom no not by any means i i, I actually think if someone can arrest drinking mm. they've like setting themselves up for a really beautiful and fulfilling and contented life and mm. and often people people that don't have a problem with drinking don't get that opportunity you know they don't get shaken into okay you've got to got to have a look at these things you've got to go back and have a look at what you experienced when you're a kid you've got to then go forward and start setting some goals and determine what your needs are and and, and i'm not saying by any means that alcoholics are blessed but <laughs> there's absolute hope and i can from my own experience i'm glad i'm an alcoholic because mm. um, I hit a rock bottom, I turned things around, I, I worked hard, don't get me wrong, and there was mm. a fair bit of pain in them, all, all that. But I, 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 like, I love my life today, I like who I am as a person, mm. I love my job, mm. and that's all I really ever wanted when I was mm. drinking. But I put the drink to the side, worked on myself, and, mm. and worked hard. Yeah, today I'm, I'm living the life I could never have dreamed of before I stopped. It's like you just feel so rock solid in yourself, particularly when you do the work. Yep. And I always say rock bottom is a blessing, but I agree with you. Like you don't, it's not like you're, you are blessed if you're an alcoholic, but 
I do agree with that and that there's so much work involved in Lyndall, who you know as well, uh, talking to her all the time about this. Like she's just hit it into the next gear now. Like she's really working so hard on her recovery after the last relapse she had. And she just said, like, she is having so many like golden moments coming up for her now. And it's been a painful process and she's doing all the work that she has to do on herself. But it's like, it's like a, a light has been lit inside her. Like yeah. I can see it when I talk to her and she's just incredible. And so much to share. She's, she's just been so incredible in our group, in my um, challenge group. She's joined that because she's really dialing up the work that she's doing on herself. It, it has been a blessing. Mm. That last relapse, although we wouldn't want everyone to go and relapse because she's realized I've got to work harder. It's actually, she's just having these like really quite enlightened moments. Yeah. And uh, look, and I think whatever it takes to jolt someone into a bit of action to change, that's okay. You know, like if it mm. takes a relapse, I don't advocate it, but I, but I certainly think you can take positives from a relapse and go, all right, what was missing? What yeah. am I going to shift? But the, for me, if I was to think about all the people that I've seen um, recover from dependency or alcoholism, the big part of it that is across the board is self-acceptance. Mm. A big part of it is acceptance of the past. A big part of it is uh, looking at the parts of us that we're really not keen on, mm. uh, understanding why they're there and accepting them. And stepping into the parts of us that we are quite keen on, and for me, that's that's a mixture of self-acceptance, self-love, uh, determination, and of course, uh, having a bit of fun along the way. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. There's so much to say. In with my challenge group last week, we did a whole session on self-love and acceptance and all that kind of stuff, and it can be quite challenging for people at times to. Even that concept of loving themselves, but I think it's such a big part. I know for my journey, it was a really big part Mm. for me because I'd spent so long like hating on myself, really quite Mm. down on myself. I knew the antidote for me to get myself to a place where I felt strong inside was I had to do the opposite to that. So I had to stop putting myself down all the time and start to accept myself and start to love myself, cultivate some feelings of love and you know, goodness for myself. Yeah, and I, good. I'm glad you brought that up because what is it? What do you think it is? What What is it mm. about us when we mm. beat ourselves up? What is it about us? You know, what what is that driver where we don't like ourselves, mm. where we think we're less than? Mm. You know, and like you asked the question uh, around the start of the podcast, what's it, what's some? What do you, is there a psychological driver behind dependency or grey drinking? Mm. And and I, I referred back to attachment theory. Mm. When people have had insecure attachment, they carry shame. Mm. Doesn't matter what style of attachment, insecure attachment you've had, but they they take on loads of shame. And that's absolutely one of the drivers of people leaning into um, substances or or alcohol. And and the best way to treat shame is firstly acknowledge it, you Mm. know, challenge it. Are these thoughts that I'm having about myself true? Am I not lovable? You know, am I worthless? Yeah. Invariably... The answer is no. And alongside that, and this is classic CBT, alongside that, we start to develop more functional beliefs about ourselves or healthier yeah. beliefs about ourselves. It's like, well, my husband loves me, I think. And so I've got some evidence that, that that's mm. not true. Mm. Um, uh, I'm helping people. I feel pretty good about myself. So, yeah, I am. A new belief to develop is, yeah, I am lovable. Yeah, yeah, that's That's right. just one example. Yeah. And then we'd start to develop new behaviors as a result mm. of the new beliefs. Yes. So, and going out and helping people is a classic one. 
mm. rather than being self-focused. So yeah, that's what yeah that's why service is so important. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's so so good. All right. Well, I reckon that's about it. Um, anything else to add? Oh, not really. Like if someone's thinking about st- having a break or stopping, go for it. You know, the the rewards are there. Like, it's a beautiful life on the other side of it. You know, like, and I don't think anyone ever that I've worked with has ever complained about learning about themselves. You know, yeah. like, I think it's a really healthy thing for people to do and to change if they need to. So, yeah, thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks for coming back, Ben. You are amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.